You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, now as we uh, turn to understand your word and inspire our hearts and minds, uh, change us by this message and give us an eternal perspective. These things we pray by the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I have too much stuff up here. Um, we're looking at a bit of First Corinthians that's helpful for you to understand the rest of chapter 7. I mean, I guess it's helpful for understanding not just the rest of chapter 7, but it also, in some respects, puts into proper perspective much of the rest of the letter, and you could say the Bible itself that verses 17 through 31 here in chapter 7 are a sort of Rosetta Stone, as it were, for much of Paul's larger message. Uh, you remember the Rosetta Stone was, uh, allowed them to finally understand hieroglyphics because it was, it was put together with ancient Greek. And so in a certain respect, here... And uh, verses 17 through 31, if you look at that, what seems like a kind of a thought detour or a non sequitur actually is important for understanding what Paul's really after here. But before we look at those verses, let's just recall some general themes in 1 Corinthians. I can't cover them all, but just some that might be pertinent uh, for what I want to say. It's helpful to remember that Paul began the letter with uh, a long uh, treatment that contrasts the things of, the, of this world the, the, uh, that this world considers wise, that there are things about this world that, that people in this world consider to be uh, wise, and he contrasts that with the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified, which the world does not look upon as a source of wisdom that the uh, Greco-Roman world sought wisdom through, you know, cultured philosophical wisdom. And there, obviously, was where you would find wisdom. Uh, the Jews, on the other hand, sought uh, power to demonstrate authority, expecting an earthly political messiah. And so a savior who dies of execution makes absolutely no sense to either the, the Greek or the Jew, uh, because uh, it's not what they were expecting on either hand. It's confounding to everyone, and yet Paul says, at the cross, there at the bloody cross of Jesus Christ, that his execution has found the true wisdom and, and power of God, uh, paradoxically, in what appears to be uh, foolish and weak. Uh, one more general point uh, to keep in mind as we look at uh, our passage today is this, is uh, a problem that keeps sort of uh, popping up throughout the letter is that the Corinthians desire to achieve a higher status in life, that they want a higher status than what they presently have. And one way uh, they do that is uh, through their associations with different people and camps. That's why there's the controversy over, over which uh, ministers one might associate oneself with. I'm for Paul, uh, you're for Apollos, you're for Cephas. Uh, that's why uh, this sort of division was happening, was that they're seeking a higher status in life based on the, the things and people that they associate themselves with. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this is a problem that we Americans deal with, too. I mean, and so in many respects, First Corinthians is helpful for, for, helpful for Americans to read because they're struggling 
with a problem that we have. I mean, have you seen the news about the, the recent college scandal? I mean, really what's behind that is a, is a fear and anxiety but that's displaced on college students so that people might achieve a higher status. That I mean, we all want our children to do better than us, but really it has something to do with economics and social standing. And so these themes about uh, the wisdom of the world uh, and status and life come to a head right here in the middle of chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, which you can find... Uh, on page 955 of your Pew Bible, or if you have the uh, bulletin, you can just follow along there, or your own Bible, you can look at that too. It, it might be helpful tonight just to, to have a Bible open because you'll see all of, of chapter 7. I mean, not all of chapter 7 is in the bulletin. I'm not going to belabor the point uh, with all of chapter 7, but just to kind of hold in your mind the full, um, the, the full chapter there. You'll see it if you, if you have an open Bible. And by the way, it is helpful to have the text in front of you during a sermon. Um, you know, I mean, because I could really, if you're not looking at the text, I could just say whatever I want up here. It's helpful for you to have the Bible on your lap, or at least the bulletin, to weigh what we're saying uh, against the, the passage. Not to play gotcha, but, you know, I mean, it's helpful for you. But if a preacher were saying something that's, it's, that's problematic, you would notice that. Maybe you might want to ask us questions. So chapter uh, 7, remember that Paul begins the uh, chapter by addressing uh, concerns related to marriage. That they, it seems that they've written to him. And they've asked questions about relationships. And so we heard that last week uh, about marriage and um, singleness and uh, widows, uh, questions and, and sex related uh, to, to these topics. So he begins that by answering uh, their questions at the beginning of chapter 7. Uh, and so therefore, verses 17 through 24 uh, have uh, they, they seem to be a bit of a, a detour, uh, a non sequitur. He starts talking about circumcision and slavery. What in the world does it have to do with marriage and singleness? And then in the rest of the chapter, he gets back to marriage, uh, beginning with discussing betrothal, which for, for our purposes, that's a lot like engagement. So topics related to marriage, this weird bit from 17 through 24 where he's talking about circumcision and bond servants and then to the betrothed. What's going on here? Uh, why this uh, detour? Um, if you pay close attention by, by reading the whole chapter, you'll see that this is no sidetrack at all, actually. Uh, but perhaps, as I said earlier, the, the most important piece of the chapter Together with also uh, later, uh, which we also have in our passage today, verse 26 and verses 29 through 31, they help you understand the rest of it. So what do I mean? Well, looking at um, 17 through 24, Paul repeats himself saying the same thing basically three times in verses 17, 20, and 24. So just, just ignore the circumcision and the slavery for a minute. And just look at how he's repeating himself in verses 17, 20, and 24. He says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. <clears throat> verse 17. And then verse 24. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Uh, sorry, that was verse 20. And then verse 24. In whatever condition each was called, 
There, let him remain with God. And so the rest of the paragraph is sort of illustrating uh, what, looks, uh, what it looks like to remain in our condition when God calls us. So what does the word called mean here? We often, or maybe, maybe you don't, but often in Christian circles, people will speak, maybe you've done this, or you've heard people, right, who talk about calling, that I feel called I have a calling, and it's not usually, it's not always vocational, but it can often be work-related or vocational, or it might just be uh, related to, to making decisions, but usually I find this to be a sort of over-spiritualized way of justifying what I already want to do, right? You know, I feel called to buy the uh, Chevy Tahoe, right? Um, God has placed it on my heart that, you know, uh, I need to eat this slice of cake or whatever. We, the, that's the way that we usually speak when we use those kind of words. And I speak as one guilty as charged. You know, I've, I've done that before. Try not to anymore. But Paul isn't exactly speaking about vocational calling or which SUV to purchase and, and, and things like that. His use of the word called describes the process of becoming a Christian. How he's using it here, he's describing the process of becoming a Christian uh, or you might say conversion. That's what he's talking about here in terms of being called. And his main point is to remain in the status of life you were in when you became a Christian. He's saying when you became a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, when you become, and these are first generation Christians here in Corinth, so most of them are probably uh, adult converts. Uh, he's saying, in the, the place where you are, in your situation in life, there remain. Um, the idea of remaining where one is, is uh, as a converted person is particularly important for the Corinthians because, like us, remember what I said, they're constantly desiring a higher status in life. Like Americans, the Corinthians, always, they're on an upward mobility uh, path. From rags to riches, the survival of the fittest. Or do you remember moving on up uh, to the east side, right? I mean, they want to move on up to the east side like we do. Uh, and so the normal course of Corinthian American life is to, is to acquire a better position economically, socially, vocationally, educationally, whatever it is. But what if you're in the midst of this upward mobility and then you become a Christian and Paul says, stop, remain where you are, uh, remain where you are. When Jesus uh, called his disciples, uh, and especially if you read something like Matthew's uh, gospel, when Jesus is walking around for three years on earth and he calls his disciples, they don't remain where they are. They, they, they throw away their fishing nets and, and abandon their fishing uh, boats and their, their tax booths, their tax booths and uh, their tax booths. Uh, where they were uh, working, and, uh, and they follow him. They literally walk around with him for those three years. But after his ascension into heaven, <clears throat> so unlike what Paul's saying to the Corinthians, to remain where you are, this is what I'm trying to say, if you read the Gospels, in order to follow Jesus for those three years, you had to literally leave where you were and to follow him geographically. I mean, there were some people where he said, no, no, don't follow me, go back home and, you know, uh, share this message. But for the most part, you had to literally follow him around. But after his ascension into heaven, following him inherently means something else. It can no longer mean uh, walking around with him. Instead, as Paul's describing here, it means devoting one's life entirely to him, 
no matter where we are. Uh, right where we are. Uh, we're witnesses to Jesus Christ where, where, right where we are. Of course, we have to balance this with a few things, with the Great Commission, uh, which tells us to make disciples of all nations. And so some will need to eventually, uh, they'll be sent out to, to reach new people. But at least right now, when coming to faith, don't worry about the status, he's saying. Remain where you are, which would have been completely countercultural. Uh, the, the default setting of the Christian ought to be this. In one's household, in one's marriage, in one's workplace, or whatever our regular haunts are, uh, but now not as an anonymous person or a, or a pagan, but as publicly a Christian, publicly a follower of Jesus Christ, which inevitably will lead to problems and to, in some of these arenas. But God has assigned and called us to those stations in life unless they uh, contradict the will of God. Then perhaps leave. But if not, if allowed to faithfully remain a follower of Jesus Christ and remain where one is, Paul says, remain there. And so, circumcision and slavery are examples of remaining as we are when called or converted. Were you circumcised when called, basically, Paul is asking? You don't need to reverse the procedure. And apparently, even back then, they had the, the, the medical science enough to do that. Were you uncircumcised? It makes no difference. Were you a slave? Remain where you are, but now as a follower of Jesus Christ. Were you a free person? You're now actually a slave of Jesus Christ and a servant to the world. So the slaves are now free in Christ, and those who are free are now slaves in Christ. It makes no difference. The point is simply to be content exactly where one is. And happily, Paul uh, does tell us if your situation is bad and you can uh, free yourself from it, and what is uh, something like slavery, uh, to avail yourself of, of that opportunity. Uh, and by doing so, to make yourself, therefore, a slave not to this person uh, to, or to this institution, but to make oneself a slave to Christ. Whose, uh, you know, whose, whose burden is easy and whose yoke is light. So in contemporary turn, terms, you could think about it this way, okay? Uh, did you have an embarrassing tattoo when you were called? Don't worry about removing it. Were you free of tattoos when called? It's no different for you. You are now marked with the embarrassment of being a follower of Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? Uh, or with respect to slavery, you could think about it this way, in contemporary terms. Were you in economic debt when called? Don't worry about it. You might not want to acquire more debt because this will just make you more of a bondservant to men. Meanwhile, just do what you can to responsibly pay off your debts. And by the way, I think this is something important for us to consider in our society. I'll just rest here for a minute that debt is slavery, okay? Think about that. Uh, you're free. If, you're, if you're a Christian, you've been, this is like speaking to the slaves. Uh, you've been freed in Christ. So don't increase, you might not want to increasingly enslave yourself to this world, 
uh, by acquiring unnecessary debt. In fact, you might want to get at it, as he says, you might want to avail yourself of the opportunity to free yourself from debt um, instead of acquiring more. Uh, on the flip side, though, were you free from debt when you were called? Great. Now you're in debt to Christ, who has uh, given his life to free you. Now I want to skip to uh, I want to skip over uh, uh, verse 25 and verses 27 and 28, just to highlight uh, 26 and 29 through 31, um, because I just want to rest here in, in the topic that I'm on. If you want to hear more about marriage and betrothal uh, and what Paul's saying about widows and those making these types of decisions with relationships. You can listen to the recording from last week with either Andrew or Craig or, or even this morning with Mike uh, and Andrew preaching. But I want to just talk about what I, I want to carry on this theme that we're on here. Because in, uh, uh, in these verses, Paul carries on uh, this theme that I'm highlighting. So the betrothal bit is once again, it it's almost seems like illustrative con content that Paul's using from their questions to really say what he wants to say. Um, so this is the, the heart of the chapter. In these verses, he's talking about eternity. Now, I mean, he's talking about remaining as you are, and now continuing kind of on that theme, he, he starts to talk about eternity. He's basically telling them, live life in light of the fact that you are an eternal person. A redemption from uh, slavery of this life means that we have an eternal hope to look forward to. And this is helpful to know uh, when you're in the thick of it, that this life, when you're in the thick of it, you know, when this life is as bad as it sometimes gets, to know that actually this isn't all that there is as someone who recognizes that they're an eternal uh, person. Paul describes this life as the present distress in verse 26. And that's because this world is at enmity with those who follow Jesus Christ. Uh, and we see this, uh, if, you don't, you know, if you don't buy into this, you see this throughout the entire New Testament. I mean, Jesus explains this over and over again in the, the Gospels. We see this with the early church in Acts. We see this with the types of issues that Paul and Peter and John and the author of Hebrews are responding to in the epistles. And it's in the background of the whole book of Revelation that this life is a present distress. And also, uh, you might have heard it described as the here and now. I mean, you know, sometimes you're preaching and a Harley drives by, right? It's a present distress, the here and now, the already but not yet. Or as Paul says in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. What he means is that this world and life are going to come to an end. Uh, so God the Father has set a time when the Son will return to judge the living and the dead, and each of us has an appointed time that's actually pretty short in the grand scheme of things. Uh, uh, things. I looked it up online and the average American life is 78 point something years. So roughly 80 years on average. As the author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, it is appointed for man and woman to die once and after that comes judgment. And so this is the reality for all of us. All of us. This is the reality that we will all die and then comes judgment. Therefore, Here's the, the sort of climax of what we're looking at here, the sort of poetic climax of what we're looking at today in verses 29 through 31. I'll just read this uh, for you again. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What in the world does Paul mean here? Does he mean to be indifferent uh, toward our spouses? By no means, because this would contradict other things that Paul says in this very chapter and letter and in places like Ephesians chapter 5. Does he mean that we should never rejoice? By no means. That would contradict themes in others of his letters like Philippians. Does he mean that we should actually give everything that we have away? By no means. This would contradict what Paul says in places like 2 Thessalonians. What Paul is saying is that we need to have a proper perspective. This is the main point, to put our life as followers of Jesus Christ into perspective, that our situation in this life is temporary. Wealth or poverty, marriage or singleness, rejoicing or mourning, slave or free, it's not the end for you. This life is temporary. I've recently um, found a, a brand new interest in Billy Graham. I mean, I wish I really had hung out with him more while he was alive. He died last year. And I gotta say, I mean, I kind of wrote him off. You know, I was sort of old school and out of touch, right? Um, not sort of postmodern or whatever. Um, but I've been picking up his stuff because uh, he died last year, and so I was just sort of interested in hearing some quotes. And I found this book in the library called uh, Nearing Home, the subtitle, Life, Faith, and Finishing Well. He wrote when he was 92. And it's about old age. But this is a great book for anyone to read at any age. So Nearing Home, I mean, he had a, he had a great, one of the things that was great about Billy Graham is he, he, he had a, a proper perspective. You know, he had a 1 Corinthians chapter 7 perspective on life. He was always talking about heaven and putting his life in the perspective of heaven. Just hear what he says here in the introduction uh, about old age and this life and eternity. While the Bible doesn't gloss over the problems we face as we grow older, neither does it paint old age as a time to be despised or a burden to be endured with gritted teeth, if we still have any. Nor does it picture us in our latter years as useless and ineffective, condemned to spend our last days in endless boredom or meaningless activity until God finally takes us home. So he's actually speaking toward that first theme of remaining where one is, even in old age, he says. Instead, the Bible says that God has a reason for keeping us here. If he didn't, he would take us to heaven far sooner. But what is his purpose for these years, and how can we align our lives with it? How can we not only learn to cope with the fears and struggles and growing limitations we face, but also actually grow stronger inwardly in the midst of these difficulties? How can we face the future with hope instead of despair? These are some of the questions I have been forced to deal with as I have grown older. Perhaps the same is true of you as well. This book, however, isn't written just for old people. It's written for people of every stage of life, even those who never have thought much about growing older. 
The reason is simple. The best way to meet the challenges of old age is to prepare for them now, before they arrive. I invite you to explore with me not only the realities of life as we grow older, but also the hope and fulfillment and even joy that can be ours once we learn to look at these, these years from God's point of view and discover his strength to sustain us every day. Someday, our life's journey will be over. In a sense, we all are nearing home. As we do, I pray that you and I may not learn what it means to grow older, but with God's help, also learn to grow older with grace and find the guidance needed to finish well. What does it look like for you to remain where you were called? And while you're here and live as one who is, as Billy Graham says, as one who is nearing home, an eternal person who's passing through this life, I realize that some of you here tonight might not be committed believers in Jesus Christ. Could it be that God is calling you out of darkness into the light of his son? If you've never heard the call before, as Paul describes it, hear it now. As Hebrew said, as I quoted earlier, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In other words, we're all, we're all eternal beings, and yet we all will be judged as either on the side of Jesus Christ or not. So please do not reject Jesus, but answer and accept the call that he has died for you, to free you from sin and eternal separation from God. But I want to speak to the church as well, for those of us who are in Christ. Are we truly living like eternal people? Are we faithful where we are called and witnesses to the love of God? I'm afraid that far too many Christians uh, live and look no differently from the rest of the world. Many of us live as if this life were actually all that there is. Even though that we come here and read our Bibles and call ourselves Christians, for the most part, we're often just living like this life is all that there is. But the average lifespan of 80 years is, is mere chump change compared to eternity. This world is passing away, as Paul explains. So stop polishing brass and rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic as it's sinking. What would your life look like if you were faithful right where you are right now? In your home, at your work, at your school, in your family, in your neighborhood? What would it look like for you to deal with this world and yet as one who has no dealings with it? What would it look like for you to live in light of eternity rather than living life like it's temporary? Well, I leave you with this final thought, that you were bought with a price. Your sin was bought with a price. Your life was bought with a price. Your bondage to this world was bought with a price. Your freedom was bought with a price. Your eternity was bought with a price. And that price is this, Jesus Christ crucified. Accepting this message secures your status as eternally adopted as a child of God. And this is the wisdom and power of God for you. And this 
is foolishness to the world, but this foolish world is passing away. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.